Hello and welcome to Running on Joy with Francesca Goodwin, the podcast that celebrates putting one foot in front of the other in whatever form that takes. This is a podcast that explores how we can live in a more connected, creative and compassionate manner for the benefit of our communities, our planet and our own mental and physical health. I'm your host, Francesca Goodwin, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what joy means to them. Running on Joy is ad-free, but if you enjoy the show, please do take a moment to leave a review and give feedback wherever you listen to your podcasts. You might also consider supporting the work of Running on Joy guest Dan Lawson through rubbish shoes and rerun clothing to end the cycle of wastage in the sports clothing and footwear industries. Follow at Rubbish Shoes and at Rerun.Clothing on Instagram for further information. Hello everyone, my guest today is a runner, a writer, a writer about running. With a background in environmental studies, they are now senior editor for Outside Run and Trail Runner magazine, while constantly exploring the boundaries of what it means to tell significant stories and how to use those narratives to advocate for the landscape that means so much to them and make the world a better place. I have so much respect for them as a communicator and forced for meaningful connection in the world, and I'll now invite them to introduce themselves in the manner of their choosing. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, so grateful to be here. My name is Nick Triello, and I'm calling in from, or I'm meeting you from uh, Missoula, Montana. And yeah, um, I am, I really think that you encapsulated my, my identity at present pretty well. I think I, think I have a lot of um, interest and have, and have, I guess, a, acknowledging some experience, some years of experience in the running world as both an athlete and a creative person. And um, really excited to talk to you about this, this, the intersection between those two things. Um, um, I've, it's, it's, a, it's with me. It's been a part of my inquiry for my whole like adult life. And I think it will continue to be um, both this intersection of athlete and artist you know, seems to be part of like the, the ongoing inquiry that I've been making. So, um, yeah, I, I could get into some of my background or I, I can, I can have you help shepherd me along here. Oh, like I'll, I'll shepherd you along in a minute if you like. Should we, <laughs> okay, go, okay. should we go back to where we met, like, or met in inverted commas? Cause I think we met, um, in reading actually, didn't we? I think it was Rebecca Solnit possibly. I think you posted something, Rebecca Solnit. And I thought, mm, I've been sort of following Nick for a while on Instagram, but I'm going to stick my oar in here because that's, that's great. <laughs> Someone sharing some, <laughs> some Solnit around. So, I mean. It's reading where your story kind of starts as well. Yeah, that's great. We we connected on just to be clear because I'm a I'm a Solnit lover. Uh, we connected on a book named Orwell's Roses, right? Her one of her most recent books. Um, and I have this like geeky Instagram account. I'm trying to figure out my relationship with social media, but the highest form of it for me right now, which is this geeky profile that basically I'm trying to read 200 books. It's called the Mandorla 200, if you're interested. Mandorla is the Italian word for almond. 
which is the sort of shape that uh, a Venn diagram creates when you have two circles that are overlapping. And it's sort of a, a, a language of divinity of like the conscious, unconscious, the material, the ephemeral, and what happens when there's this little overlap in the middle, you have this individuated sort of space. And my, my goal was to read 200 books that were sort of loosely based on justice, place, and, and, and uh, ecology. And one of those books was Rebecca Solnit's book. And what I do is I write 200 words or less, no more than 200 words. That's sort of a little seed packet, a little distillation, a little almond that tries to capture the blueprint of that book in 200 words or less. Anyway, that's where we met. I'm really grateful that we like had it back and forth about that book because I love Solnit very much. Uh, but yes, by uh, I guess autobiographically, I think a lot of reading got me into the practice of writing um, and got me into the practice of listening and got me into the practice of um, of of being sort of moved by the 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 magic of story and the magic of um, compassion transmitted through the word. And I think that I was my mother was a huge reader back in the day, and I I. I pretty much modeled her behavior early on. Um, uh, so yeah, I think that's that was sort of the precursor to all any writing that I've been doing in my life has been a sort of function of a, a strong bedrock of loving books and loving stories. And I guess um, people sometimes see kind of reading as like quite a solitary activity, but I mean, we connected through it. And do you think that that reading is really a way of building pretty meaningful community and connection? Yeah, it's funny you say that. I think that's totally the reason not to harp on this this little Instagram project I'm working on, but that was actually the the reason why I started it was that I felt reading to be fairly solitary, sort of like running, not to sort of shoehorn these two things in together, but running can be extremely solitary and you know, solo enterprise. And it can also be the valence can be very social. It can be very connective, um, both with humans and more than human you know, spaces, but, um, but it can also really feed my need for solitude and reading can do both has those big valences as well. You know, I can really um, shut off my social animal self and bury myself in a book. And that can give me a sense of eight kind of solo agency in, in my own space. Um, and, and one of the reasons why I have that book in my hand in the first place is because somebody recommended it to me or some you know book critic wrote a really beautiful piece about it and it turned me on to wanting to read it um somebody sent me a text to me like i just finished this book can't stop thinking about it i was up at two in the morning crying because it's so good um you need to read it so it's it was a i think reading can be very social and it can be actually a not to sound sort of ram dasi here but it can it can be a a method for expressing gratitude for the people who offer you these gifts of, of reading recommendations and also the publisher and the, uh, of course the author. So thanking, giving gratitude to the artists and the publishers who put all the work into making these beautiful things for us. So yeah, and so by doing this little project, it's helped me connect the actual practice of reading to a larger community. And that, that's, that means a lot to me. I love that description of reading as like that kind of chain of gratitude. I hadn't really thought of it that way before I guess I kind of always I always kind of thought about it as an energy exchange you know I, I mm. love giving people books generally when I gift things to people it will be a book because I like matching a book with the person and feeling kind of 
that satisfaction of having found the right book for the right person kind of thing. But yeah, it works in terms of like the, the pay it forwards with gratitude as well. But I kind of feel like with your with your project, again, not to harp on about, <laughs> about it, um, but um, there is kind of a connection there with, with running because I get the sense that it's also sort of a, a quest narrative in a way, like a quest for being uh, a good reader or a better reader. And I guess you kind of have that with the competitive element of running as well. Would you say that's accurate? And what does a good reader even look like? What, where is the end goal? <laughs> Yeah, I love this. Um, this is like totally in my wheelhouse. I think that um, so much of the running experience for me has been one of uh, of one of specificity. Uh, so training for a particular goal, for example, or training for uh, an objective. I don't really like that word, but but something that you want to complete, whether it's a route or a race or some upcoming vacation or something, you know, vacation race or who knows. Um, to, ver- to, to, study, to study the topography, to know the route well, to know the resources that you're going to need to get from A to B um, requires a level of, uh, of attention and presence and curiosity. Uh, that I also, I guess, to connect the dots here, as a good reader, you sort of need all those things in your quiver. You know, you need to be able to maintain a level of curiosity. Um, you need to level, you know, you need to maintain a level of um, attention, sustained attention, to be able to understand a little bit more about what the writer's doing. Um, one thing I think about a lot also with reading is to read, like readers, to read well is to actually kind of hold a lot of things at the same time you know, um, a lot of different, like the, the sort of geologic record of re- like reading for me is layered in these strata of like, okay, I'm reading for craft. I'm like, I'm like examining this, this writers, this artists, uh, architecture. And then I'm, and then I'm also kind of wanting to be engrossed in the story. Cause that's why I'm here. And I want to be moved emotionally. Um, and that, you know, so you're, you're reading it sort of at various levels at the same time. And sometimes I can feel really fragmented and kind of like um, bifurcated or, you know, but sometimes it can be a really beautifully fluid ex- experience. Um, and I think that I'm working on being a reader that can sort of experience someone's book and their, ob- their ob- object in front of me as all many things at once. You know, it's, it's a personal journey for this author. It's it's having a conversation with me and how are they doing that? Well, they're doing that through very um, a million different choices of craft, of narrative tension, of, you know, specificity, what elements they're deciding to include. So um, yeah, I feel like the more that, again, I'm not trying to shoehorn this into running, but the more I'm thinking of a race I did last fall in Europe where we ran, it was a transalpine race, an eight day stage race. And it was one of the more recent examples for me of a, a race ex- run experience where it really was, uh, I'm going to say successful, not because of any result or time, but that my partner and I have to team race. We really did the legwork ahead of time to know the course, to check in with each other, to really be attentive and presence for each other, present for each other. Um, and again, all those things seem to be sort of overlapping as I'm speaking it out loud to the experience of reading well is to like be present, attentive to the various layers of, of a place or a, a story or an author 
um, those all seem to be like the common denominators. Does that make sense? Is that yeah, absolutely makes stretch? sense. And you, you, but you talked there as well about this kind of idea of of it being linked to like reading for craft, like reading for your own writing as well. And I find myself like when I'm when I'm writing lots, I'm also reading lots. And I know that you you're also you have been kind of a, a student of writing as well. And do you ever find that kind of when you're reading for craft or just reading in general that you ever feel a kind of anxiety about what you what your reading should look like or what you what you should be reading? You mean what my like anxiety about what my writing should look like or how yeah so if you're reading to kind of if you're reading lots of different things and then you're thinking oh well I should be reading this because this is what I want my writing to kind of be like (laughs) absolutely yeah absolutely um the differential between so many so often I'm sure you have this experience also you know so often I was just telling somebody this recently who's not a writer but so often we get the fruiting body of the final product, you know, a book that's just, I just read this piece, this book by Pico Iyer. I think I just posted on the Vandorla, um, uh, who just is like, a, you know how people say, describe books as like meditations. Mm. I don't use that word lightly, but this book was a meditation. It was a med, like it put you almost in a meditative state in your body. And I bring it up because when I finished it, I really, want want that to be part of the resonance in my own work with my with my readers I really want a level of like a clearing in the forest a breath like an oxygen I keep on describing it as oxygenated like it had had oxygen it had like space to breathe um and think and it didn't feel messy really it felt really clarifying like when I came out the other side like more clear and hot in mind and clear and clear in heart and that but I bring that up because I know for a fact I've had conversations correspondences with Pico and I know that he toils over sentence structure you know it's just so you don't see the mess you know you don't see the mud um you often just see the final product so that's what I have to remind myself daily when I'm reading is that this you know, the things we see on our bookshelf, I have a bookshelf right to my left here, full of books, all completed projects um, that have gone through innumerable revisions. And it, how do you remind yourself that in real time as you're, you yourself are working on something and the drafts are looking really terrible and they often do for a long time. And it um, is one of those yeah. things a bit like with running as as well. I mean, let's go there and make... <laughs> Make, keep making the connections because it was someone you know gliding along looking effortless um in the way that they're running people don't see the work that has gone into that and um it, it's the same with writing as well it seems like there's this wonderful magician trick behind it and actually again it's it's a work isn't it there's effort <laughs> That's, I mean, you said it so better than I could. Exactly right. You know, you see someone gliding along, um, you know, you see a Jim Walmsley or, a, you know, Courtney DeWalter or something. And, you know, Courtney DeWalter is a great, a great example because I think that a lot of the interviews she gives, she kind of offers this sort of like no plans plan. And so people think like, oh, well, that's the way that, you know, it, but I, I had, we had some back and forth recently where it made it very clear that she's absolutely committed to the craft of running and running well. 
it's no question that she puts in the work and the effort. Um, and she also has a sort of a less linear way of approach to it, but, but we don't see the hours and hours and miles and miles of, of labor that she puts into her craft, her, 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 her sport, her practice. And, um, I sort of love that. I sort of love that. Um, it's nice to remember that the, it's nice to remember that when you see someone that's, that's in a, in a place doing something great, that there's a lot behind it that that's been put into that grace. Um, yeah. And that's the trick, isn't it? It's well, that's the work. It's, it's the effortlessness that comes from it. I mean, there's people like Killian who are making his training and, and the work more transparent, but that doesn't take away from the magic of the effortless result of it too. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, one thing, one of my best friends in the sport, Joe Grant, he's a, I keep on bringing him up in conversation because I just love the guy. He's one of my best friends, but he, we talk about style a lot, like style. We're both like have a skating backgrounds and um, we follow artists and musicians and, 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 and runners, of course. And there's this sort of style. There's a certain style that, that athletes and artists and, you know, skaters and musicians have. And that, that, I don't know how to connect the dots exactly, but that, when I speak of grace, I also think I, I, th I sort of feel like that's synonymous with a certain style that, 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 ex that folks express themselves through their respective vocations that, there's a certain style of a drummer or something that you see and you're like, wow, that, there's something different there. And that's maybe a function of the, the unbelievable amount of unseen hours spent, you know, hitting that snare drum a billion times. Um, uh, so there's definitely a connection between like grace style and just the innumerable hours spent practicing this thing that they love, um, which is important, right? Like there's, there's like the function functional kind of like putting in the hours, the miles, the vert, or the, the words on paper. Um, and then there's the sort of, there's, there's the form that the function and form, uh, of course, like that, that, that connection, the, the combination between the sort of practice of the thing and then the sort of like result and expression of it. Um, which again is like, Oh, I think that's part of why racing is really fun. I, I've, I race less now than I used to, but um racing to me is sort of like a moment where you kind of pop out of the soil and you're like all right well I did a bunch of work under the under underground like how do I how does all this express itself in sort of the public sphere now um and it's sort of a good it's sort of a good check on one's fitness and one's um humility and but also also the work you know like I ran a half marathon in Las Vegas last weekend to cover a story there and it was kind of messy and it was messy because I didn't train for a half marathon, a road half marathon, you know? And so it's sort of, it was like commensurate with the work, you know, like the style wasn't great, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, and that's okay. I, if it, if it was graceful and wonderful, I, I would have like been really surprised. It's really interesting so. actually now with the, the kind of live streaming of a lot of trail events, which I think that, that you guys in the States are a bit more ad advanced than we've got at the moment over in the, in, over in the UK, but I've noticed a lot kind of the commentary saying kind of, oh, well, that's Courtney or, you know, that's so-and-so because they can tell from the way that, that they're running and your identity is kind of tied up with that. And that being really evident in, you know, the the guys that are sort of at the top of their game, like Courtney, she's got a distinctive style. <laughs> That's so true. Yeah, you're right. You're totally right. That's such a, as, as an editor at Trail Runner and sort of the outside run world. And that's one of the 
largest, when I've been talking to, you know, race directors and media makers in the scene, um, that's sort of the most exciting next year or five of the sport of how, how the sport is being broadcast. Um, and it's just getting better and better. Of course, we're watching these live stream events happen and, um, that gives us this like unprecedented view into what otherwise was sort of a, yeah, this, like in an ultra, you know, a mountain ultra, so much of that, so much of the the embodied experience of those races, we would only see as spectators or crew, we'd see at aid stations. As pacers, we'd see little sections with our runners. And as runners, we'd see, you know, these long stretches where we're by ourselves and we're like, it's sort of messy. And we're, we got, you know, goo all over ourselves. And we, it's just like a kind of a, it's kind of a mess. And so now we're starting to bridge that gap between the sort of black box of the, of the actual embodied experience. And we can start watching this happen and unfold in real time. And that's exciting. That's totally exciting to me. Yeah, that's cool. I'm not one of those people that like watches a live stream for, like I knew friends of mine who would like watch the Coca-Dona live stream for like however long that was, like five days. <laughs> and I'm not quite there yet, but, uh, I think it, the sport, nonetheless, still is is conducive to and um, and re- and teed up for some really really strong success in that in that department. I also see this like emergence and or a re uh, kindling of interest in sub ultra distance trail distances. It's like those are two kind of trends that I'm really watching right now. Um, and those things sort of might might work really well together, like the excitement of a shorter trail mountain race and how to really document that. You know, you watch the mountain marathon uh, in Alaska. And that's been documented, you know, that's been broadcast on live news or whatever in Alaska for years. And that's a fun, fast dynamic race. Um, that's not a hundred miler. So it's not like a 24 to 30 hour experience, you know? So just technically it brings up a lot of questions I know. Um, but yeah, I'm interested in seeing how where it goes. Um, it's, it's pretty striking how, how good it's getting already. Do you think that also reflects, um, and I think that we've actually chatted about this um, via messages before about kind of the long form versus the hot takes balance within outdoors orientated journalism as well. Do you think there's a synergy there in terms of how we move forwards with that in the sport? Yeah, I think there is. I think about it all the time. Um, I've brought this up before and I'll say it again. I think I'm so curious about the, I'm so curious about the, uh, the invitation that something, a a long form piece of writing in particular can do to the recipient of that media, not just the content. Again, we're talking like multiple layers of media consumption at, at once, but, um, when I read a long form piece, it's a commitment. I stop, I like, I brew up a cup of coffee and I like sit with this piece because it's going to take me a half an hour to read it or something or longer sometimes. And so what that, what that's doing is not just giving me information, but it's actually setting, calibrating half an hour of my life to, to be different in the world, you know, to actually like say yes to a different way of being in the world. I was just having this conversation. This may or may not be related. Forgive me, but Actually, it's totally related because the people who might listen to this podcast might do this. But we had this conversation this morning with a big photographer friend of mine here in Missoula 
um, where he hates when people speed up podcasts. He's like, he's like one pet peeve of mine is when people turn on the podcast at 1.25 or 1.5 to like get through it faster. And he's like, what, you know, what is that? You know, why, why are we so compelled to like speed up our, our consumption? And so I'm, I totally do that. I, you know, I do that with podcasts all, you know, in the interest of getting as much information as I can, I often will turn it up because I have so many minutes of the day and, you know, the schedule is full. So I bring it up only to say what long form storytelling can do, I think, and what I'm so excited about doing more of it myself um, and, and championing other people to do more of it in the coming years is that it really helps us push back against um, uh, contrived, shallow approaches to to experience in the world. I think it can actually be a way of, it can actually um, ha- like be a little like life hack to slow the F down a little bit. Um, and that's why I love reading so much because a lot of my day is quite fast. But when I sit on my couch, lay on my couch, supine, and I read a book, it r- demands that I slow down. And I need that. I need that in my life. I need that more than ever in my life right now. Um, and so if I forfeit that, that flavor of media consumption and just get, like commit to just uh, a life of hot takes um, that cadence that cadence doesn't uh, invite me into any sort of relation depth relationship with with uh, with media and not only media but a, but a relationship with the authors and the ideas that they have it doesn't really give respect the the artist or the communicator much either and so yeah that, that might be a circuitous answer does that make does that land at all? No, that absolutely makes sense. And it was putting me in mind as well about what we were saying about work and craft, because also on the part of part of the writer, like the long form requires you to also be sitting with that work and to go out and, and find the story rather than the story, as we were saying, kind of with the with the video content that that's produced lifetime for events, you know, it, it's all there. The story is happening in front of you um it doesn't need discovering um and i think that you and the the like the the reason that sort of like your work strikes me a lot is that you kind of have that sort of pursuit of the story that then you kind of i feel like you sort of grow through that process as well mm. would that be accurate yeah yeah thanks that's that's really uh, kind of you to say that i think that's true um yeah to actually communicate that in the piece itself to me i like reading writers that do that i think it it offers a level of trust to me that you are in fact there on the page you are in fact being moved with the very ingredients that you're you're choosing to include in this piece for me the reader you are also uh changing uh you're changing your your you've you've been moved by the the very words that you're sharing with me about your your experience and that that to me seems like a really powerful uh, cultural technology you know um, yeah you know I've, I've never really considered myself a journalist whenever I whenever someone like um, like my co- my colleague and supervisor Zoe Rome at Trail Runner is a dear friend of mine and she's she very much identifies as a journalist, but she's also an artist and a beautiful mind and person. Of course, um, these are all sort of identifiers, small boxes, but journalism always makes me a little bit nervous because it, to me, it's like, 
it feels sort of disembodied or it vacant. There's like a vacancy of the, of it's like a reporting, you know, reporting on, which is absolutely like a pillar of democracy and everything. Like it's, it's, it's required of us that we do, that we have journalists and reporters. And I do a lot of it in my job, but I also really appreciate and love and gravitate towards the art that where the, the artist is a writer is like in in there somewhere, not central, not the center of the universe necessarily, but, but that is you, you, you're, you're walking alongside or running alongside um, uh, him or her. So, so I, I just feel like that's personally stuff that I enjoy. Um, and it's, it's a, it's an ongoing game of hygiene and process to figure out the right balance where, how the soundboard of where you, where you are in the piece and where, where you need to pull back. And that comes with drafting and that comes with sharing it with others. And that comes with asking yourself in the piece, you know, is this about you? How much is this about you? How much does the reader need to have of you here um, to gain that trust without, without you eclipsing too much of the, the actual story, which is not about you. Um, so yeah, sort of like using the ego as a delivery system to gain trust and also ego, I mean, I guess like the I, the, the personal pronoun to gain trust and to just be honest with the reader that you're in fact there too. I'm so glad that you just went there because I was about to jump onto getting you to reflect on where you sat in terms of putting the personal into storytelling and I, I like the differentiation that you made between like the journalist and and the writer and the writer having more of that attachment to having some of the ego in there but as a way of kind of saying this is this is worth something and you're trusting me to to appreciate that worth and again that idea of kind of gifting something that is of worth to to the reader too and I'm I'm curious what do you therefore think makes a good story a story of worth mm. um so I I write I'm I'm one of those terrible people that like gets a brand new book at the bookstore or you know, online, whatever. And, and I write, I make notes. I write in it like crazy. I underline things, star things, write in margins. Um, part of me feels like that's, I say that that's terrible because so often I love giving my books. I pass my books on to other people and I don't necessarily want to seed that book with like what you should deem important in the book by me underlining it, you know? So, so I, I, but, but, um, the things that I always end up writing in the back of the book, you know, are the following. I, I like things that I've noted as like, this is amazing are specificity. So often in like one of the most, one of the most common things I write when I'm editing for trail runner outside with a, with a freelancer is like, when in doubt, like go specific here, get like, get into the specificity, get into the detail, the textures of what you're, you know, Oftentimes we generalize because of, of of word count or specificity, and that so often a little bit of specificity, just the small little details, can do so much for us. To you know the classic show don't tell sort of mantra. So so much of the, those those details can be showing us far more than like the word count it, we often take to tell what could be shown through something really small. Um, I think that humility 
is a big deal in writing. Um, I think I've said this somewhere before, but my last lap, my last laptop broke that I wrote a ton of words, uh, on this laptop. And the first key that broke the first letter was the letter I, and it really had, had like an existential moment where I was like, I need to really sort of <laughs> pull back on, anyway, it brought up a lot. It brought up a lot, a lot for me. And so, so I guess what I'm saying is a lot of the books that really resonate with me are books that have a sense of author as present and also not, not necessarily author as central, um, which again gets it gets difficult when you speak to memoir and autobiography, of course, because that's you're like centering one's story, right? And so um the best stories that I've found are ones that are again able to balance the personal eye with the larger archetypal questions that they're trying to not answer but sort of revolve around. Um I love when I mean so much I think explicitly Pico Iyer in this book that I mentioned earlier talks about is that um it's all about the unanswerables, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's all about our relationship with uncertainty and the grace and the inquiry and curiosity that we can sustain in not necessarily demanding answers to, to the, to the mysteries of life, I guess. And so I think a lot of, that sounds a little woo-woo-y, but a lot of the books that I'm looking at right now on my shelf have a really mature, humble and graceful um approach to uncertainty and i mean one of my best mentors william du bois who's a pulitzer prize finalist writer from new mexico told me like you know always focus on ambiguity like when you're in a scene or you're talking to somebody interviewing somebody like be fully present as present as you can and also have an antenna for what is ambi what is ambiguous what's a little what's the asymmetry like in their in the word choice they make um what's like just map the asymmetries because that's where there's some there's like the the action is a little bit off and that's what is most interesting about us is we're by being in constant process all of us there's a little bit of like asymmetry always um and that's not a bad thing but that's that's a really interesting thing when it comes to storytelling is like that 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 tips the plate just a little bit on its edge. So then that gets the ball rolling and that's where the narrative tension comes from is this sort of just something's not quite quite, quite in balance. Um, and so I'm always sort of looking for where those threads are in a place. Like I, again, I was in Las Vegas last weekend and there's just, I mean, of course, there's just so much material in Las Vegas. It's just like stunning. I sort of love Las Vegas for that. There's just so much beautiful phenomena, like simulation that, that you can kind of focus on. I was actually, I felt really attentive there. It almost felt like a meditation retreat in some ways to be in the heart of, you know, the strip. Um, so yeah, I guess some summarizing specificity is always like the best, you know, looking and being comfortable with uncertainty, ambiguity, and paradox, um, and being sort of writing into that. Um, and then I guess humility, yeah, the humility and constantly kind of appraising one's uh, use of the personal pronoun and its relationship to the content, the content. Um, Recently, I, I'm working on a big writing project and I like control F the personal pronoun I and really like I examined every single page and where that where that I was in a 60,000 word document. And there are moments where they just cl like clustered embarrassingly often like it was just it made me in my skin crawl to 
think how important, you know, self-importance there. So it, that was a good exercise. And there's something there in, in that notion of um, humility um, and being a kind of antennae of actually you are, you're bearing witness to something. And I'm curious um, in terms of your, your oeuvre of, of storytelling, um, are there any particular stories that you felt particularly privileged to bear witness to? Um, yeah, it's, it's, two come to mind. One, and I actually feel as though there's like a rewrite that I wanted, I sort of want to rewrite it in a bit, but I'll, I'll, I'll speak to one actually. One that comes to mind is um, one of my dearest friends from high school uh, lived in a town adjacent to Paradise, California. Paradise, California was the um, location of a, the California's largest wildfire. One of one of California's largest wildfires, if not the largest, uh, several years ago. When was that? Um, I want to say 2018. I might be getting that wrong. Um, and he, his house was vaporized. His house was like burned to the ground. And he, his seven month pregnant wife uh, and his family like barely got out alive. They, they did survive. They were fine. I called him shortly thereafter and he was giving me the whole story of his escape evacuation um, and just the ramifications of uh, her, his wife's health, et cetera. And then he was giving me all these details and he said, you know, and I, I only had a few bags to kind of pack. So I just packed really fast. I, took my one, like one book from the bookshelf and, and left. And he kept on going with the story. And I was like, wait, 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 Andy, uh, you took one book? Like, well, like, so your, your whole house is like flattened and you took one book, what book? Like, tell me the book, speaking of books. <laughs> and he told me the story about this book uh, by the poet Robinson Jeffers, who's a California poet. Um, and it, a deeply important poet, to me, but I hadn't actually ever read this this one book. It's called uh, No Man Apart, Not Man Apart, Not Man Apart. Uh, it's a Sierra, Sierra Club sort of coffee table book written in the 70s or 80s um, alongside beautiful photography. Um, anyway, so I end up spending the next year or two, I, I get the book that I, I get my own copy of the book. Um, I keep on tracking his story and his wife's and the, the birth of their child and their sort of re-establishment of finding home now that their 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 house is, was burned to the ground, um, and and as I learned more about the book, the book talks a lot about um, the human relationship with the non-human world, um, and there was this beautiful intersection between um, between deep deep ecological geologic time and the sort of like quick cultural, political moment that we're always sort of metabolizing. And that's like central to Joe Robinson Jeffers' work is like he really examines time and he basically is like, it's kind of, I, I could ramble a long time about Robinson Jeffers, but he really has a, a good grasp, one of the best grasps on um, geologic time as this sort of like eternal humming, uh, uh, time, te uh, temporal check for us as whenever we think that we're either, um, 
you know, king of the mountain or that we have, we have our finger on the pulse of reality. There's this long, deep, old story being told and, and being uncovered that kind of in the background, not in the background as like, because we're very much part of that unfolding story as humans, but we sort of feel ourselves other, other uh, as working on different time, time cadences. Um, going back to the 1.2 podcast, right? 1.2 speeding up our podcast. We mm-hmm. feel like we're, you know, we're so self-important that our lives feel like our cadence is, 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 is the, is the cadence. And there's such an older story unfolding um, in the sort of more than human community. And so Jeffers writes a lot about that. And so I, I basically wrote a story about the book, his reclamation of this book, Jefferson's biography paired with my friend sort of reestablishing his, his, his life after this big wildfire. That felt like a huge privilege to be there for, for my friend and to really be attentive and presence, present for his story. And then also just a really cool way to uh, study a poet um, and his, his intentions with his work. That's really strange because that's actually the article that I probably gravitated the most towards mm. of things that I've read of yours and I had actually taken out um you because you quote from uh not a man apart in it and there's those lines um it is my cry my silence I am the nerve I am the agony I am the endurance in it and it was something that I that I wanted to come on to um with regards both writing and your own running as to what endurance as embodied in in that quote kind of means to you yeah that's a big question um yeah it comes up it comes up like so often um in our in our running practice of course like literally enduring enduring through runs but also there's the longer I think there's, there's endurance when it comes to like, I, again, I've been, I'm not, I'm no old salt. I'm only 39 years old, but I've been running for, you know, 15 years. And, and I, I, this last year in particular, I was really asking myself, like, what am I doing? Sort of, what am I doing this for? Like, why, why, why this sort of big why? Um, and, and I guess I bring that up because it, it definitely dovetails with this conversation about endurance and resilience, but endurance in terms of um, I, get up every day and we do this thing called running. Uh, we endure, why wouldn't, why would we otherwise, why would we do that? Why would we put ourselves in like intentionally uncomfortable situations? Um, it brings up all sorts of questions and that there's an endurance related to like not wanting to go out. I mean, it's snowing, it's like snowing hard right now. And um, there's a lot of resistance to going out into that and running right now, but for me, but there's a there's a there's a level of the 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 um the pay the pay like the payout for for actually going like pushing back against that resistance and so i guess there's like an endurance component to the longer questioning of your intention for for running in the running department and then i mean i got to say there's no more agonizing endurance activity than writing um, because you keep on going back to an essay, a draft, and it's just not getting any better. It's like not going anywhere, you know, and the, the, so often you want to burn it to the ground and start, start over, um, so often. And that there's a constant sort of having to check that level of, um, 
surrender and fail, like just wanting to like stop something uncomfortable. Um, so I guess endurance to me is defined as I'm trying to kind of decouple resilience and endurance right now. I'm not doing a great job, but endurance enduring through otherwise uncomfortable situations because you know that the payout, the payoff, the not the destination, but the sort of the checkpoint that you're sort of scraping toward is a long string of accomplishments that helps me build a life that feels meaningful and connected and, and, and it feels accomplished and it feels um, driven. There's like an engine there. And so I guess endurance is the process that is pushing through bumps of resistance and self-doubt um, that gets you to some sort of checkpoint along the way of, of like unending process that holds back onto you a level of self-worth that we all sort of need to keep our engine going, you know? Otherwise, I, I, I feel like there needs to be some sort of checkpoints of accomplishment and sort of like, oh yeah, you did this thing. It turned out pretty well. Um, you ran this race, like, good job. You finished something. You set your mind to it. You, you set your mind to it. You pushed through resistance and you did the thing. It didn't solve everything. It didn't, you're not in the hall of fame because you ran the turkey trot, but you like got up and you went to the, you went to the, you went to the race and you finished, you went to the writing desk and you spent two months hacking away at this dumb draft. And all of a sudden it's 2000 words and it's legible. Um, and it's sort of a beautiful thing. You made some beauty in the world. Uh, you made some grace, grace, you added some grace in the world because you went through, you know, some mud. And so I guess that's, that's like part of the agony that I love that quote. That's like my favorite quote of the whole piece of Jeffers. And that's what, you know, some of the, I guess the, the title of it, you know, speaks to that agony and endurance is like the agony is part of the is the flip side of like of the epiphany you know agony is the flip side of the the uh the light you know the the i guess the the, the joy of doing the thing of having done the thing and the, the the accomplishment the feeling of accomplishment and i know you wrote recently about um getting promiscuous with your running which was a great phrase coinage there but was that kind of caught up with I'm hearing there sort of you questioning and exploring how maybe constructed identity around this idea of endurance. Was that exercise in promiscuity <laughs> part of that questioning? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great, I mean, that's, I, I haven't even really thought about connecting endurance and maybe, maybe that's sort of been expressed in that piece, but, um, essentially I just took all of last year and scrambled my own biases toward this practice of running and which had been previously 50 Ks to hundred milers, mainly trails and mountains, not much road. Um, and then all of last year really tried to do just to change things up a bit. And I think part of that was an interest in uh, sort of investing in a life of running, wanting to make sure that my relationship with it was one of joy, well, like centered joy and centered curiosity, promiscuity in the etymological sense of the word, meaning just sort of like 
open to alternative forms of whatever um, as a function of enduring, as a function of getting, if I'm so lucky, like to an old age and having lived and run a full life, you know? And part of that was, I think part of this, this essay that I wrote or this, this piece was to sort of chronicle a sense of re reminding myself of that really integral part of, of being a runner, which is to remain sort of buoyant and open to suggestion. Um, so often we can kind of get myopic in our goals. And I totally did, you know, in the first several years of my running practice, you know, I, I really focused on a very narrow set of a very narrow definition of running. And particularly as someone who is in the media space now of running and even more recently been invited into a space where it's both trail and road at outside run, their run desk um, is essentially sort of servicing all dimensions of the running world. And so I think for me, I really needed to not out of obligation for work, but really needed to on a, on a, on a deeper level to know a larger definition of this, 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 this thing we do. Um, and that really helped. It was beautiful. You know, it was such a beautiful thing. And it, it, it certainly is tied to endurance and that certainly I think like literal endurance to actually sign up for a race next week, say that is a certain distance on a certain surface and be like, yeah, I can probably do that. I'm I've, I've like spent the last year really adapting my running practice to like be able to run on roads or mountains or whatever, at, at, at whatever distance and be able to jump in and, and participate. I really love that. Um, and I love that not just as some flex, but going back to the, the community component, it's actually like to be able to go to the half marathon in Las Vegas and really connect with people, talk to like, and not be like, Oh, I, I don't, I have no time for you because you, all you do is run half merit, like recreational half marathons. And I am a, I'm a serious competitive, all like long distance trail runner. I have no time for this. It's such hubris, you know? Um, it's such hubris to think that the, that the, the lane that you're in is the best lane. And um, so part of the reason why expanding the definition of the running practice is also an, an invitation for me to like be connecting with, as many people as I can who call themselves runners or, or running adjacent, you know, and that's important to me that like egalitarian commitment um, is important to me. And I, and, and I'm not trying to throw ultra running under the bus, but it can get really, and I've, I've fed this monster, but it can get really insular and sort of like, um, and, and arrogant, you know, in its own, in its own little, little world. And it's quite small, you know, it's obviously it's getting bigger, but it's still like a, I mean, I was walking around Las Vegas talking to runners at the, at the half marathon, like, what's ultra? Like, what, what's, what's anything farther than a marathon? No idea, you know? And I'm not saying that to like throw them under the bus. I'm saying like most people just want to have an experience in their bodies and it doesn't effing matter how long, how long that, that you, yes, there are benefits. There are some interesting things that happen when one goes a certain distance or a certain time. And I totally love that. That's why I love long distance running. And that long, quote, long distance can be, it's all relative, you know, based on people's experiences. And so I just want to be there for that. And I, I haven't been previously in my experience, in my contributions as a runner. And I'm, I'm trying to like really lean toward that identity, which is a sort of multivalent identity. 
Mm. And did you find that, I mean, did running precede writing? When did running and writing actually become kind of symbiotic for you? And then also running then becoming a vehicle for activism? Yeah, so running and writing intersected. Actually, um, I moved in 2007. I moved to Portland, Oregon um, after college. And after some traveling and met, uh, I, I mentioned Joe Grant earlier. He's a, he was just getting into ultra running um, and sort of long story, but I got basically got swept into the running scene in Portland, Oregon. But I guess what we're writing came in was, and again, Zoe and other friends of mine, Peter Bromka, another great writer runner. Um, we all talk about how much we sort of hate the, the race report. We always like joke about the race report being like the worst form of writing, but we've, I've done it so much. And in fact, it actually is one of the, I was going to answer your question and say like, that's how a lot of my writing and running or just maybe writing in general was like cultivated in some ways of, of having these experiences running that were deeply embodied and sort of psychedelic as they got longer into the 50 mile and hundred mile range. I was like, what was that? What I was on my feet for how many hours? I need to process this somehow. I can't just keep this in my body. Um, and I wrote these terrible race reports, you know, of course, that few, a few of which were published some, you know, in ultra running magazine, I think originally, and got some work in trail runner at some point. Um, I'm not discouraged. I'm not discouraging race reports at all. In fact, I actually encourage them whether or not they ever like need to be seen by anybody else is a different, <laughs> is a different question, but any sort of incredible interior experience that you really want to process like get that, get that out on paper. It's the best, it's the best, it's the best way to like see it, you know, and work with it. And so I think that that, that was probably the beginning. And then um, I got into some activism work in Portland, uh, started writing about that because that was a deeply moving sort of disrupting experience for me and how I saw economic models and my place in those economic models and work and community and the, a lot of the lies that my my the system that I, in which I live has sort of told me and a lot of like a lot of breakthroughs there and having to process that somewhere other than my own crazy brain but then also getting in of that evolved into um work some work uh I I I found myself as part of a group that was organizing to stop a gold mine in Baja Mexico for example um and we did that that included a 70 mile run that went across the Baja Peninsula that was captured in a, a 20 minute short film called The Crossing. Um, and that was a, I wrote a lot about that. I wrote, I wrote a podcast episode, um, uh, a feature for that. And that was uh, this intersection of a growing environmental ethic and this embodied practice of long distance running and while in less modified places and how those two intersected, I found that to be a really potent intersection. So so both were sort of like developing in in relationship with each other, and as the running sort of sort of plateaued as far as my interest in competing at a high level, uh, I found that the writing the craft of writing really sort of took hold, and I was more curious. I was I'm really curious about how that to deepen that that practice um, in a healthy relationship partnership with with running. Um, so. So yeah, I guess like after several years of exploring that, I've worked at a couple of different sort of pu publishing worlds. Uh, I was in at Orion Magazine for three years, for five years basically. Um, 
which is an environmental arts and science magazine. One of the best out there, I think, print magazines. Um, and then evolved to work with Outside and Trailrunner um, just over a year ago. So, And your work is very embodied not in not in the race report style of embodiment um, <laughs> and the, this is how many goo gels I ate wow um, but um, in the sense of what you're kind of talking about there is is sort of presence as well kind of presence with yourself and do you find yourself kind of the most present um, where those boundaries dissolve between writing running um, and activity Yeah. Yes. That is, that is the, com that is the common denominator. Um, all these things, I love that it's all sort of circling back into itself, but all these, all these practices are all for me, invitations, like little, little excuses to be a little more like to, to sort of open the aperture a little bit to like dilate the, dilate the, the view shed of, how I'm experiencing place. I was just talking to a, a friend recently about how right actually uh, an assignment for writing, like when you're assigned a piece and you have to go to a place and meet people and come back with details. Sometimes writing is like, sometimes a, an end, like a written piece is like a, the receipt of, there's nothing more than like the receipt of deep, of the quality of the writer's attention. You know, like I was like, you're just getting sort of a, you're just getting sort of the end result of w how present that person was, you know, and, or not. And so I think that um, all these things, you, the reading, the writing, the running um, are all invitations to be deeply present in what you're doing. And I fail every day on all those fronts in my attempts and it's, but I'm trying to architect a life where if I'm not, if I wake up and I'm not going out for an hour or two run on the, on local trails here, um, then I'm in the kitchen feeling myself to then pivot to a day of writing or reporting or, or interviewing or listening. And then by the end of the day, I'm like trying to do that by way of reading. And, and all three of those things are really like, that's the three-part structure of my life really. And I, I'm trying to like do all of those as practices, both creative and I don't want to say, I'm going to say spiritual, but that's like a big, like, I know that's like a hot word here. And I don't mean that like in the sense of, I'm putting a new agey disclaimer on that. I know it's kind of annoying, but um, I do feel as though those three things as I get older and deeper into those three things, I want them, I'm trying my best to like approach them with a deep sense of, a deep sense, a deep opportunity for presencing and being being in, in landscape, being in ideas and being in, being a co-creator of an unfolding process of, of, of creating beauty in the world and truth. And so that's what writing does. That's what reading is doing and I get, I get that. I get nutrition from other authors that are doing that similar work. And I, and I have the great joy of working with other authors to help elucidate their, 
beauty in their truths through through their drafts. And that's it's like one of my favorite things. I'm such a nerd with that stuff. And is it that that you're sort of feeding into your longer writing project with your with your book at the moment? Because I'm put in mind with your discussions there of kind of revolutions um and presence and connection of um what you're doing walking in circles <laughs> and I was, I was yeah. wondering if actually this is like a good point to maybe just chat about that and and when your relationship with that started and what it means and why you feel that those stories need telling yeah um yes it's totally all uh implicated in this this longer project um, and I won't go off the deep end here, I promise, with, with details, but I got really obsessed with, I got, let's see, I, it started with a, a pretty deep disillusionment with sort of peak bagging, the peak, like peak, peak bagging approach to landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I haven't summited many a mountain, but I also, the ways and the language that we've, that I've so often, we so often hear in the outdoor community of uh, sort of conquest um, got me thinking about other alternative forms or counterpoints to that approach to mountain landscapes. I was then sort of exposed to a form of mountain experience that was nonlinear and and circuitous that where, where pilgrims or walkers would basically circumnavigate, circumambulate the base of mountains as opposed to fixate on their apex, on their summit, as a way of understanding this place, this hunk of rocker in front of us. Um, I quickly learned that this practice was basically like a, a, a pan-cultural practice of mountain experience that we could find everywhere in the world um, and through all major religious traditions, um, uh, circumambulation, Tibetans call it Kora. There's all these there's words that describe this, you know, uh, this the circuitous walking around mountains and leaving, often leaving the, the peak alone, often, you know, leaving the middle of the the the, the summit to its to, to its own devices. Um, that so that level of like, I keep on calling it kinesthetic restraint, uh, a, a sort of an ethical practice of moving in landscape that sort of is both presencing to our conversation earlier, it's deeply presencing to the route, the ways in which we move through landscape are, are really determine um, our fidelity to, and our intimacy with that place, I think. And for so many years, I was unconscious to the ways in which I moved through the landscape. And I still very much am, I think in a lot of ways, but this particular form of moving through landscape really, uh, sort of blew my mind in some ways. It really it like took me off guard. And in the last 10 years, I basically explored, um, mapped out all the places where this happens around the world. I followed several storylines over the course of several years um, on several continents, three or four different continents, um, and basically came up with these three big, big stories that are now part of a, a 250-page book that that hopefully will be coming out in the next couple of years. Um, and it's about it's about this it's about stories of people in various landscapes who have chosen to walk around landscapes as a pra- as a 
practice as a routine practice of knowing home and knowing the self um, in that place. And also a subtle suggestion that, that um, there's not necessarily a place that we're getting to, you know, that again, this is the Ram Dass disclaimer, but like, there's nowhere to go. You know, there's like no, there's like nowhere necessarily. And I'm, and again, I'm saying this with complete insecurity that I'm, I'm, I have no authority to like speak in terms of these like prophetic, you know, disclaim these, these like prophetic sort of expressions, but I'm, I'm learning through writing this thing that there's actually like, I always want to go somewhere else. I've all my whole life. I've wanted to go somewhere else. If that's like traveling internationally to find something out there, if that's me running up a mountain a million times to find my like best self on the top of that mountain way up there, not here, not now, but up there at some future date, some higher elevation, some rarefied areas. And then like deliver my best Nick. Um, and that is a really, that's, that's a, that can be a dangerous frame. I think, um, I think that's, what's gotten into, uh, into a bit of a pickle in the climate, uh, crisis. I think that's gotten us into a pickle in terms of our economic models that there's this like frontier of bounty. That's just, just around the corner. And so far as you buy into it, we'll take you there. Um, that something as innocuous and as like simple as walking around the base of mountain has taught me that there's nowhere to go. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's this, this is it right here, right now. And there's literally no start or end to this, to, to the circling of a, of a, of a place, which can be analogous to your, your, yourself, you know, the more you circle your own, the contours of your own interior, you realize that like, it's all, we got the, we got the raw material right here. There's no, there's no, there's no summit that has anything that we need. Um, so the whole project is uh, moving toward, moving into that understanding of being in place and the, and how hard that is for me. That's the way it sounds also. I mean, it, it touches on so much of what we've been saying in terms of hubris and, and what's the point of endurance and things. It's a different way of storytelling, of, of finding a new way of telling a story that is actually kind of the antithesis of the hero's journey, really. It's it's mm -hmm. about being in in process rather than in progress. And so often nice. I think progress is something that as you say is kind of displaced and out of reach and we must be progressing whilst actually we need more processing mm. yeah I love that yeah that's well said um and again it's 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 really challenging it's it's a lovely riddle because I'm a sucker for progress we all are like I want to be better I want to I want to run up I want to run faster. You know, I want to like, I have goals also. And it's such a paradox because, because the, the book itself is a goal. You know, the book itself is like to finish the thing. And like, it could be perceived as its own like summit where you just, you reach this, you make, you make it, you make the thing, you know? Um, so pro the process. So I'm, I'm constantly trying to sort of ha uh, check my relationship with the intellectualizing of that and also the reality that I am waking up every day and need a level of, I need some direction to shoot myself in, to, to fire away toward, or else if I'm thinking only in terms of process, 
then, I mean, the, the valence of having a, a goal or having something to work toward is also helpful and, and provides inertia in one's life and gives us something to work toward also. So it's, I'm constantly like, that's the whole book is like wrestling with that tension of being present and also moving in some direction with some engine of curiosity is coming from some, something that's out sort of outside of me. Right. There's like, that's, there's like a, there's like a deeply autobiographical narrative tension of wanting something else with it that drives you towards drives you towards that curiosity and brings that level of zest in your life. And it also takes you away from being here. Yeah, totally. And it is that kind of pilgrim mindset that I guess perhaps we can all learn from about being curious and open, but also intentional. And I guess that comes down to learning as well. (laughs) And, and the things that we can learn sort of through, through movement, through being present. Um, And yeah, and I guess, do you think there's something to be said now for the way that we're maybe moving as a community and running with kind of thinking about solving the puzzles that come on the doorstep of slipping on a pair of running shoes and seeing what happens? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, there's like a really wonderful tension in our community as runners of having these unbelievable tools that tell us our heart rate and our zodiac sign you know you get like every you get everything you need on your wrist now um where you are in time and space and there's just exceptional technological achievements advancements in footwear and apparel you know a lot of which i i report on advocate for ostensibly sell on my platforms that i work and also realizing that there's a deep tension there between that and also the simplicity of it. You know, there's a lot of pushback on like running is simple. All you need is shoes because that's not totally the case, you know, for other communities, you know, that have less, fewer resources or live in urban situations. It's not as easy as it, as we want it to be, you know Um, it's not as accessible as like the, romantic version of just like put on a pair of shoes and you're a runner. Um, And also there's, so there's this deep tension there between um, finding the right relationship with the ways in which we're like further abstracting this, this sport with our gadgets and our gear. And also realizing that some of that stuff's really nice to have. Uh, Some of that stuff's like, I ran without a smartwatch forever and I now have a smartwatch. Um, Do I spend hours like, analyzing my metrics. I don't, do I have Strava? Yes. Does that take me away from, does that further distance me from, uh, from the, from having a really deeply intimate relationship with where I, where I'm running? I I don't know. Like I, I see a lot of my community running various routes here in Missoula on that platform that helped that stoke curiosity and new routes for me. And that's exciting. I also judge myself and compare myself to the many miles that other people are running that I'm not running. So it's, it's a constant game of, it's a constant game of um, being aware of where your thoughts and your eyeballs go as they're, as they're engaging with the technology and how that's making, how that's making 
the practice of running more complicated than it needs to be yeah Um, and learning through the process and like you said like we will fail at some points as well with that and it's not about getting it perfect in terms of being completely switched off from that and completely simple about it but being being curious being open being being intentional as we've as we discussed and I think that's quite a nice point to sort of draw things together a bit because I'm mindful that I could probably talk to you for like hours (laughs) and hopefully we can have many more conversations but the podcast audience might like you know have given up by this point so um (laughs) so just thinking of like a few shorter questions like just touching on learning that um if you could study something right now that isn't kind of more your sort of general investigations for your for your writing what would it be as far as like topics or as like a like a vocation or something yeah like a if you're going to go back to university and study something hmm. I think um okay that's a, that's a good question um I would say if I well to to that actually specific question I would probably go back for something in terms of um some some combination of religion ecology and 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 literature so story how how stories interface how stories interface with like uh interpretations of divinity and how that how the natural world is expressed and captured and abstracted in stories and in in our conceptions of of god um, but that's, that's sort of a weird answer because that's, that's like specific to like just my own geeky interests. Um, but then it's the funny, when you first asked the question, I thought about like, like hands-on vocations. Like I had this deep interest in relearning. I used to like frame houses and I've like lost my like tactility of, I haven't like done con- like hard construction or working with my hands as much these days. Cause I'm in the world of words. And I feel like I really crave an, a, a future chapter of like, actually being curious in terms of working with like actual like material elements and so whether that's woodwork or growing a yeah building a building a home or something I think like I have like an insecurity about that that I really want to go toward right now it's it, it's it feels far but yeah and again I think it's a great combination of having you, you hear that the romantic sort of combination the Wendell Berry of like I farm and I write and I I have a very sort of bifurcated existence where I'm, when I'm in the writing den, I'm, I'm doing that. And then, but my life as it looks like right now is just like, it's a lot of, it's a lot of variations of, of craft and writing and words. And sometimes that's, and most of the time that's amazing. And sometimes it's like, ah, oh, it'd be nice to have some, some contrast. Yeah, I love that. Um, I find that sometimes when I'm when I'm writing, I want to be painting or something or doing something with my hands or and then if I'm painting, I'm like, oh, no, this isn't this isn't saying the things that I want to say. So I need to write. (laughs) I think I think having those two things together is um, well, it's a real privilege, I think, as well. And, And the same with the, you know, as we've spoken about the craft of running as well. I think that's a great, great choice. And this is a question that I'm burning to ask before I wrap it up because I just thought of it and um it's if you had one conversation left ever would you have it with a friend or a stranger Mm. 
I sort of, I sort of want to say stranger because the follow-up question to friend would be who, yeah. what friend would that be? Which brings up all sorts of anxieties for me um, as to choosing and I'll, and a stranger, I'll, I'll leave it on this note, I guess. And I keep on bringing this Las Vegas trip because it was, it happened last weekend, but as soon as I got there to report on this race, the Las Vegas rock and roll half marathon, I got in an elevator with a, a man with one leg. He had a carbon blade on and we start talking he's drinking a tall boy Coors. It's like 10 in the morning. And he's a, he, so he, he has his sunglasses on and he starts telling me the story. He's a Saudi. He's my age. We're going up to the 56th floor in this casino hotel. It's like strange environment. And we're in the same a stranger to your point, stranger in an elevator. And he begins to tell me the story about how he was a Saudi military officer who was patrolling the border between Yemen and Saudi Arabia. And it was shot by a, uh, a rebel sniper in the leg and he lost his leg. Um, he pulls out his phone and shows me the video of him actually getting shot. Somehow there was like surveillance footage that like captured the moment where his whole life changed. And he was here at, in Las Vegas to run on a brand new carbon blade that he had just been, that he just picked up in Houston, Texas on the way from Saudi Arabia. Uh, and he was so, so excited to run this race. And I came in to our point earlier of like this half marathon road, Las Vegas, ugh, like let's just, it just wasn't my book. I'm, you know, we're biased towards dirt and long, you know, whatever. And I just met this stranger to your point that like brought me to tears with his story of, of his history, how many miles and much, how much money it took for him to get to that elevator together with me and for him to have the sort of uh, curiosity and bravery to show me the, the footage, he brought me to his hotel room. He, held, he, he asked that I like held both of his legs at once to feel the, the weight of the old leg and the lightness of his new carbon blade. And he just gave me a hug and he's like, all right, we're here together. We're doing this. And I left. And that was a, that was a deeply humanizing moment for me that I don't know if like, if I chose a, one friend of my community to like, have one last conversation if I could get there. The the curiosity and mystery of of a strange stranger encounter might actually like have a like a more powerful delivery because it's not about like it wasn't I didn't choose someone something else chose. Yeah, and that's uh, that's amazing. As we've been saying about how do you find a good story? Uh, it's by by listening to a stranger and paying paying attention. <laughs> yeah, so curious. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. And now, so just to ask the kind of final, well, second to last, slightly banal question, but exciting. What's next for you in writing, running, editing, which we haven't actually really talked about very much, sorry, <laughs> and, and, and activism as well? Um, yeah, there's, it's, it's really focused on this, on finishing this, this book project, the Walking in Circles book. Um, that's really the focus of this year for me. Um, as far as running, um, I'm actually going to be going back to that stage race in Europe this September. Um, I'll also be reporting, I think on UTMB, I'll be at Chamonix for that event. Um, and probably a few other races sort of this summer, but not, not, not any races registered right now. Um, 
a lot of interest in doing a few routes. I want to get to the Wind Rivers in Wyoming. I have an interest in going to the Teton Crest Trail. Um, have some uh, a, a ton of really um, interests here in Montana. Uh, so mainly one big race in the fall, and just a lot of being here, being here as much as I can. Um, and then I have an essay that I'm writing on air. That's like the, the topic broadly, broadly expressed as air, which will be coming out this summer, or maybe actually it's part of a book book collection and I will have an essay in it. I don't think it's, I don't know when it's actually going to be out, but I'll, I can let you know. Um, and I'm writing about the history of air saloons, which are basically like oxygen bars, bars where you can go and like get, you can buy instead of a drink, you get oxygen, like put in your, your nostrils. Yeah, yeah, and I'm yeah. just like, kind of, I'm like repulsed by it to the point, like, so intrigued by how strange that is that we're sort of selling air to ourselves now. Um, I actually went in when I was in Las Vegas again, back to Las Vegas. <laughs> by the way, guys, oh, do you know Nick was in Las Vegas? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like a, I'm like a tourism. I work for the tourism bureau of Las Vegas, actually. Uh, I'm getting commissioned every time I say the word. Um, no, but I went to one in the Venetian. So it was a strange situation where I was like in this fake Venice canals. There's like gondolas going by with lovers and boats and like strange situation, but it was a fake Venice. And I was getting a 30 minute air sort of infusion um, because I wanted, I was so curious to like, what, what is this thing? So I'm writing a piece about the history of like selling air to ourselves in all the strange ways that we do that. So that's, that's coming out. I don't know exactly when that's coming out, but um, in the next year. That's, I'm just thinking like, air infusion that's nuts I'm just a brave new world don't like it no um <laughs> totally totally I know but I say the, the last thing I'll say is between the promiscuous running thing and the air saloon I have this thing I have, I have this new uh motto right now where I'm like whatever I feel initially sort of like my hairs go up on like my wrist hairs go up on, on end I'm like ooh, I should probably go in that direction and see what's going on there because I I want to like I'm, I'm interested in going in the direction of places and and situations that maybe initially I, I've like kind of signed off on or, you know, so I'm trying to like go there a little bit. Are there any so. of those um, runs from the promiscuous running episode <laughs> chapter of your life that you're revisiting? Was the, was the stage race one of the ones that was part yeah. of that? Stage race. Yep. There's a chance I'm going to do CIM, the marathon. It's a road marathon in Sacramento in December. It's a really fast course. Um, there's a chance that I'll might, might take a, another shot at a road marathon, but not sure yet. Yeah. Keep us posted with that. <laughs> it <seems laughs> it like won't be very exciting. It's quite in vogue at the moment. I think quite a lot of people kind of dip, dipping back into the fast road marathon. <laughs> I know. Right. I know. I know. It's fun. Sort of. Um, my final question that I ask all my guests, Nick, um, what does joy mean to you? Mm. I love that question. And I'm also deeply in Ross Gay's book, which is actually forthcoming on the Mendorla, the book project. Um, Ross Gay is a poet um, and he wrote a new book called Inciting Joy. And so I'm sort of like thinking a lot about what joy means for me. Um, Joy means joy to me. Words that come up for me are connection, 
uh, attention, emotional resonance, feeling something in my body. <laughs> um, the last time I've, I felt like deep joy was last night when I was playing horse, like a bas the basketball game horse uh, with three dear friends here in Missoula that are all big time runners, Mike Foot, uh, Brendan Leonard, the semi-rad, the humorist, uh, and Forrest, um, who's a big time runner here. Um, and we just played horse. We played basketball together. We put our phones down. We're all big time. We're all runners, but we played basketball together and we got Vietnamese food and we laughed and my face hurts still from last night. And we, we, we were just texting about it this morning. It's just, it was so simple. It didn't cost anything. Um, but the phones were, phones were put away. We were together in space and that was, those, all those elements brought joy to my life. So I guess coming back to like, yeah, being together, I mean, solitude also, I've had joyous moments in solitude. Absolutely. But I guess connection, connect, connection, deep connection is really tied to joy for me. Um, and again, I keep on going back to this also, but like time, having time, having like slow time is always a sort of a prerequisite for me to like feel deep joy, I think. Slow time with some horsing around thrown in too. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And where um, can people, where can we signpost for people to follow your reading, your writing and your running, Nick? I would say if you wanted, if you're curious about books, if you're a fellow book, book nerd, join me on at the Mandorla 200. Um, that's on Instagram. Uh, I'm, I'm no longer on Twitter. Uh, I have a, I have a website, nicholastriello.net, which I post most of my, like most of my bylines that I'm, that I want to put out there in the world. Um, and then at trail runner and outside you'll, you can find my, all my work there. Um, it's sort of all over those, those platforms. Um, yeah. Thank you. I'll, I'll put those in the show notes too. And I know we've spoken about the gratitude that you can feel through reading and connection and I'm just so grateful for this conversation Nick um gone to so many places um and as I say there's so much more that we could talk about that I hope we can at some point so thank you for your generosity and your real deep reflections on on so many things um I I've taken so much away and I think uh need to go and kind of like let that be a process of reflection for myself too from this <laughs> I'm so honored to even be asked to be here so I I felt that similarly with you as soon as we connected online so I really appreciate what you're doing here and totally humbled that you would even invite me on here so thanks thank you so fun <laughs> I am so grateful to the community that is growing around the podcast and if you've enjoyed today's episode I would so appreciate if you can share it with your communities and help spread the message of support, perseverance and joy further. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future guests you can find me on Instagram at running underscore on underscore joy. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time for Running on Joy.